Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jarrell Mason. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man, one half of the duo responsible for bringing you such hits like I Can't Wait, Make Your Mind Up, Should I Say Yes, Point of No Return, and all that and then some, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Smith of New Shoes. John, welcome to Beyond the Album Publisher. Nice to be here. Yes, sir. So how are you? Uh, excellent. We just uh, moved to Washington from, uh, we lived in Portland for, you know, 50 years and uh, just moved up to Washington. It's really cool up here. Yeah, uh, the Pacific Northwest is definitely on my bucket list of places to go visit, Portland for sure, and Seattle and around Tacoma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we love it up here. Yeah, and plus, you got to get all that good rain, so I can hardly get rain where I'm at, so, you know, I definitely- Where are you at? I am, I am in New Mexico, but I'm originally from North Carolina. Oh, really? Yeah, I can hear the North Carolina. Yeah, we toured around um, the Southwest a whole lot over the last couple of years, and I love it, especially uh, like Tucson, like Tucson. Yeah, the Southwest is a great place to be. I love the dry heat. Don't have to deal with that humidity like back east in the summer. So that's the one good thing. Yeah, you know, here. hey, man, you know, everybody says, oh, it's it's a dry heat. You go, it's 120 it's a they everybody says it's a dry heat but really it's biblical heat you know what i mean it's like one of the plagues or something you can uh cook a piece of meat in your car oh uh, yeah definitely don't try that at home people so let's just go ahead and jump right into <laughs> it now were you always musically inclined had a natural gift for music or were you one of those students that were taking lessons and just got better over time by taking programs in the arts in school well, that's a great question. Um, I think I was always musically inclined. I could hear things when I was five years old, but I didn't take up an instrument until I was 15. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a pathologist, actually, like a doctor that doesn't see patients. And uh, one day I walked into the school library and this kid goes, hey, come here, listen to this. And it was Hendrix, Band of Gypsies. And from that moment, my medical career was over. And I just, just like, I have to do this. And so I, I didn't miss a day playing. And then, uh, and that was in 1971, like 10th grade. And so I just uh, really got into it from Hendrix. That kind of led to jazz. You know, Hendrix to Coltrane to Charlie Parker to Ma Vishnu uh, and then to Funk. Now, did you? But I had, but I had grown up in the Motown era, right? And collected all those forty fives, all the uh, Motown in the context of like the civil rights movement and stuff, and the riots in the cities, and and all that stuff. Dancing in the street without civil rights, you know, you just don't get the same experience out of it. So I was really fortunate to um, be a preteen in the mid nineteen sixties when all that great music was really happening. So by the time New Shoes started in 79, I pretty much had a, a good encyclopedic knowledge of soul music. 
Right. So prior to new shoes being formed, were you in any previous bands and cutting your teeth doing the talent show or battle of the band circuit? Well, it was kind of, I grew up in San Pedro, California, and being underage, there was nowhere to play. Uh, but when I got to Portland, there was uh, bands playing the underage clubs. I was, uh, I became a, an arranger and piano player for a salsa band. And Valerie was in an African band. She played with a Ghanaian master drummer. They were both bands with horns in them. And after you're in a a band with horns in it, you can't live without them. Right, you definitely sure can't. Now, who are some of the bands that really had an influence on you when forming new shoes? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, we didn't have a lot of records. It was hard to find R&B records in Portland. But um, Tower of Power, Earth, Wind & Fire, and we could really play that stuff, too. We had the right drummer and the right uh, line of vocalists and we had four horns so we could play tower power earth wind and fire uh sly and the family stone and especially johnny guitar watson was kind of an influence wow definitely can't go wrong with that now you mentioned that rb records were very hard to find in the pacific northwest what were some of the oh yeah that you all used to go visit to try to get your rb fix well oh my there was there was only one R&B radio show and it was at two in the morning on the public radio station. And I made one tape, one magic cassette off that show that we ended up playing every song on that tape. It was really hard to find that stuff, but I would go visit my mom who still lived down in LA and tape the radio because I had the privilege of growing up with the best black am station on the planet kgfj it's not around anymore 12 30 a.m the sound of black america and it was just uh wow it was like a window into another world you know so i go see my mom and tape the radio that's what we had to do to find stuff to play but also the scene in portland was really oriented oriented toward original music really you could get away with playing 80% original music in a band and work all the time. And people had a tolerance for it that I don't think there's an attention span for it now. Right. And you mentioned how for the public radio station, you only had a two hour window for R&B on a certain time of the day. That yeah. people is what you would call day party. But I think by doing that, you have a broader sense of musical perspective because you're able to understand different genres and be able to incorporate the sounds and stylings of those genres and mesh it into your own style. Sure. Well, I wanted to be an arranger and, and you know, have the big, big music paper and tell the horns what to do and stuff. So I learned arranging combination of uh, teachers and well, just guys who lived in my apartment building who were rangers, you know, and they go, oh, no, do it like this. And and they saved me a lot of uh, time. But I was lucky because everything that I arranged and wrote down, I got to hear from the Latin band in 77 on. And, and after New Shoes, I got into ad advertising music and I was a music director and orchestrated stuff, got to write for string quartets and orchestras and latin bands and all this stuff so i've been very lucky in 
And also, you know, you just have to be a connoisseur of all these styles. You got to know how 1920s horns sound different from 1970s horns, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be a jack of jack of all trades and masters of none because upon and a magpie. <laughs> yeah, true. Because I can remember hearing about a lot of people starting in bands during that era. You had to be well versed in everything. Go from performing a top forty oh, yeah. record, going to an R and B record, going to a rock record. So you really had to cover the gamut because you never knew who you were going to be playing for. Yeah, yeah, and plus, you know, we liked everything, right? I mean, yep. in the in the 80s there were a lot of competing things but you could like you know you could like guns and roses and you could like run dmc and uh public enemy was a, a i loved public enemy uh i liked the um the messy kind of but million samples all like fight the power you know i love the texture of that more than like the dr dre kind of um lauren hill stuff which was sounds like one drum machine and a keyboard mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so i like the did, big sound yeah i gotta <laughs> love that big old echo that reverb nothing like reverb right oh yeah a lot of percussion mm, heavy percussion so how did new shoes form because upon doing my research i saw that you guys originally started off as a 12 piece yeah well we originally started well, here's the whole story. Uh, the Latin band Felicidades broke up around 1978. And I, I went to New York and I saw the real Latin bands. And I was like, I'm never going to be a real Latin musician. I'm going to go home and start something American. So the first New Shoes was really a four-piece for the first year, which was 79. And I, what I wanted to do was a vocal group like the Temptations or the Four Tops. But everybody in the band was bringing in all this weird stuff, Eric Clapton and Paul McCartney tunes and all this stuff. So we kind of lost our soul music direction. Then in 1980, I was playing with a rehearsal big band and somebody gave me a Tower of Power chart, sorry, a Tower of Power chart to look at. And I'm reading it and I'm going, wow, this is the same stuff I play on the guitar. I could do this. I could arrange a Tower of Power type horn section. And so I went on and did that in 1980. The band just really took off with four horns and three backup singers. We had 12 people then. And then about a year later, it slimmed down to nine, which was kind of the magic version of the original band. That was the happening. We had a ladies' night gig at a club called The Last Hurrah. And um, and it was just pumping on all cylinders, you know? It was just really working. Right. And you guys released your debut album in 82, Can't Turn It Off, then your sophomore mm-hmm. album, That's Right, in 1985, off of Poolside Records. Now, I didn't know this prior, that I Can't Wait, Wait originally was a local hit around Portland, and then it somehow got a hold of Peter Slockhouse in the Netherlands, where it was remixed, and then that caught the attention of Atlantic here in the States. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, it wasn't just a hit in Portland. It was a hit in the whole, all the big top 40 stations in the um, Pacific Northwest, you know, Seattle, uh, Idaho, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, 
because we knew a guy at um, Warner Brothers. He was a promo man for Warner Brothers, and he taught us. He taught our manager, especially how radio worked and how to get it on stations and stuff. So they, those two guys, created a regional hit, a big regional hit. And then we got turned down by all the labels. They said, oh, that's just a regional hit. Uh, and then we sat around for about nine months and a DJ subscription record offered to put I Can't Wait on their uh, vinyl that went out to about a thousand DJs. They made a thousand copies of subscription thing. And that's how Peter Slockhouse found it. He was actually hired by the head of a little... A Dutch label called Injection. And uh, it turned out later, we found out 35 years later that he didn't really like the song. So he was more into ABBA. And so, um, yeah, he, he did the minimal amount to it. He put that synth line on it, basically, and, and did a couple cuts. He was a really good tape cutter, Peter Slughouse, with the in the days of the razor blade, you know, before Pro Tools and all that. Uh, but he really didn't interfere with the song very much. And so what you hear is almost purely new shoes, you know? Yeah, and that was going to lead me to my next question. Was there a big difference between the original version and the remix version that later exploded nationwide? No. No, it's not that different. If you listen to them next to each other i think what we call the american version which was our version um it's you know a little bit more of a horn band song and um you know he just took the same he took our version and put da 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 da, da on it which we like to call the barking seal Man, that's so crazy because that record, it was a top 10 pop hit, top 10 R&B hit, number one dance hit, and you guys got your deal with Atlantic. So what was that like when Atlantic came into the picture and said, hey, want to offer you guys a deal? Well, it's pretty stunning, actually. The single, the single had gone gold, uh, and so, but we were still shocked that they picked us up for an album. And we made the album in six weeks. It was mostly stuff we'd been playing in the clubs. And we went in with a producer named Jeff Lorber, who was who we knew from in Portland. And he was a LA session guy by this time. And yeah, we made that in six weeks. Um, the, the thing about Atlantic, um, I never want to complain about the label. And actually we were fortunate because they didn't know what the hell we were. <laughs> a hippie funk band. Uh, they didn't put our pictures on the cover of the first record because because um, we were white. And uh, they wanted, you know, Atlantic was an R&B label, you know? And so they knew how those stations worked. And if there was a couple white faces on that uh, album cover, we would have got a lot less airplay. But really, they didn't ever interfere with us because they just had no idea <laughs> what was going on with us you know we weren't your standard we weren't Levert you know and you know we weren't uh, an easily categorizable um, 
banned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this was back in the days, people, where if you were a white artist trying to get on the R&B stations, they would leave you faceless on the album cover. So that way you could be able to work the R&B market and then go pop. And like I said earlier, you mentioned Levert, label mates of yours on Atlantic. Also, Troop yeah. was on Atlantic Records. Chucky Booker mm-hmm. was later. on Atlantic Records later on. Now, did you have yeah, any yeah. interactions with um, Sylvia Rohn or Merlin Bob? Atlantic? yeah yeah i sure did <laughs> i'd rather not comment on plead, that plead the fifth plead the fifth all right so yeah 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 yes. no sylvia was all right and and in her defense uh she became the uh head of r&b just after we'd been signed and she was out to mold Atlantic R&B into something cohesive, you know, and I feel like it was was a more middle of the road sounding R&B thing, you know, like smooth, smooth R&B that, you know, for uh, 40 year old guys with BMWs, you know, it was kind of that sound slick and, and certain you know, R&B is conservative like country western is. You know, there's certain parameters that make a record that will fit the format of those radio stations. So I don't blame Sylvia Rohn for kind of looking at us and going, oh, you you don't fit my vision of the R&B department at Atlantic. I get it, you know, and that was, ah, um, I'll tell you what, you know, it was great to get signed and it's great to have a worldwide hit. But the most fun I had was being the top local band for for two years in Portland. And you could do anything, you know. I could I could play a salsa tune or we could play we could just turn on a dime, you know. Mm-hmm. That was really great. And and after we got signed the band, we kinda let go of the band because we were never really a duo but they wanted to market us like that. And so, yeah, I, no sour grapes against Atlantic whatsoever. Right. Right. <clears throat> and after a while, I just, you, you know, after we got dropped, we were like, phew. <laughs> what a re- we were relieved, really. Mm-hmm. So how do you find that balance between creativity and the constraint of major labels where they want to fit certain demographics fit in the box. But if you're musically all over the place and you want to express yourself, it's hard to do that when you have <clears throat> shareholders to appease to and you want a deadline to be turned in by quarter two. So that way we can push you up for a fourth quarter release. Oh, you know, first of all, we were completely ignorant of the record business and the music business really the music business uh entirely when we got nominated for a grammy we're like oh and then it turns out that's a pretty big deal you know um but yeah atlantic like i say before they never messed with us they never said hey uh you know we really need a single we never got any of that from them because they're you know they just looked at us like some hippies and and we certainly weren't uh, didn't have that new york vibe 
or that LA super striving to be in show business kind of vibe. We were jazz musicians, you know, that just kind of fell into this dance 12 inch remix thing and uh, had no idea what it was about, you know? And so, um, yeah, that's all I can say. It's like, we nobody ever instructed us to fit a format and I'm proud to say I never tried to make another record exactly like I Can't Wait, which would have been a wise thing had I known more. Uh, I'd go back and probably do things a lot different. Mm -hmm. So how did Point of No Return come about? And Shep Pettibone ended up doing the remix for that record, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the best thing about the Shep Pettibone thing is I got to meet Arthur Baker. You know who that is? Yes, Mr. Arthur Baker. Yes, sir. Yeah, I got to I got to hang with Doc uh, with Arthur Baker for an afternoon, and the Latin Rascals guys were coming in and out of the office and stuff. So that was really a thrill. Uh, Chef Pettibone did some good work for us, but at that time, I didn't understand the remix thing. I'm like, why isn't my mix good enough, you know? Uh, and so I decided to not go to those sessions because I didn't want to be the guy sitting there going, oh, no, why are you doing that? Like, no, you just go. Do your thing. Um, you know, I listened to this interview with Chrissy Hind, and she, she was talking about there's this one song that she wrote called Brass in Pocket, I think it is. Huge hit for the Pretenders. And she said, you know, yeah, it was a huge hit, but um, I never really liked that song. And the interviewer asked her why. And she says, because it didn't come out like what I was trying to make, <laughs> okay? And that's how I feel about Point of No Return. Point of No Return to me, I never finished it. It never got finished and it got put out uh, in a form that, um, I don't know, you know, it's a huge hit. And like Chrissy Hind, I, I, don't, I don't think Point of No Return all that much. But yeah. I'm, you know, the, the video made everybody happy and, and, and a lot of people love that song. What I'm proud of is I really like Should I Say Yes. Of course, I can't wait. How can you not like that? because that was just a session that came out perfect you know it's and and it's a lot more factors went into that than just me or just valerie but a uh, a perfect record is a combination of the song the singer the vocal performance and what's going on in the business at that time and so it just it ticked off all the boxes on that the vocal was perfect the track really worked out after fooling with it for six months and um and there was a hole in the business that, where we fit in right and during the 80s it was really the height of remixes we mentioned Shep pettibone you also had jelly bean benitez offer baker latin rascals it was pretty much a big deal to get any of those guys to remix your album. And if you're a label, you're like, hey, let's extend the life of the record, get a hot remixer to remix your record so that we can extend the shelf life of this particular record. So and sometimes it works. 
Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know what one of those remix cost? How much? A ten about uh between ten to fifteen grand. Ooh. That's a lot. There's this guy there's this guy uh named Mantronics that that mixed um uh should i say yes and we got to do that remix at electric lady studios in new york hendrix's studio on the old hendrix freak right um and he, we did it at electric ladyland so that was pretty great and and i really like that guy mantronics he uh he had a keyboard player that he worked with and the keyboard player would just come in and they'd put down all these parts that he'd just do, they'd record everything this guy thought of. And then Mantronics had, I forget what model drum machine it was, but he had his own samples in it. You could burn your own samples for the early drum machines and just pop them in like chips. And so he just had this really warm thumping sound. It wasn't like an 808, it was like, ah. You know, so that was a great remix experience. Right. So what was the process going from the Poolside album to making the Told You So album, which came out in 88 with Should I Say Yes? And you stated Kurt Mantronics or Mantronics did the remix for that record. Yeah. What was it like going to? Well, we went on one tour. We we toured after Poolside uh, 70 cities in 73 days. That was our only national tour. I wasn't really interested after that. Um, because here's another example of how little I knew about the music business. The people only wanted to hear the songs that were on the radio. And they would sit on their hands for the whole rest of uh, Oh, and you had to tour. When you toured, you just played the nine songs that were on the record. So as a jazz musician, I was bored with that immediately, you know? I'm like, what? Can't we make up a song backstage and come out and play something? I'll write up something and we'll go out and play it. Uh, no, because uh, show business isn't like that. It's like, you just have to go out and do your hit. So the people would sit on their hands and not really respond. And then we play the two songs on the radio and they're like, Ah, you know, and to me, that was, you know, it was a privilege to be there. Yeah, but I was bored by that, honestly. And so anyway, so there was no time to write really uh, on the road. But we set up a studio when we got back to Portland. And I just started cranking out, you know, it's not in our family. We don't have writer's block. Writer's block is exists nowhere around our family or our band or, you know, what are you going to write now? Write a song right now. And hey, the Beatles proved you can do it. Um, yeah, I could write a song right now. Um, yeah, that's no challenge, you know, but but the thing was that uh, I was kind of bored with the old new shoes sound at that point 1987 and i wanted to do something earthy like little feet um you know 
kind of kind of bluesier direction because i mean even after all this i didn't realize that we were now in the dance music business you know i just you know i just wanted to uh get bluesy i think i've read about people's sophomore albums you know and you just kind of seek comfort i think but writing songs was not a problem uh should i say yes was written in minneapolis <laughs> and i was in this basement studio called the dungeon it was like like a medieval kind of thing like eight feet thick stone walls and stuff and while i was down there writing that song there was a tornado in minnesota and four people were killed <laughs> and i never heard it because i was down in this dungeon writing that tune and uh, it turned out like four people had been killed and all this stuff but when i came out at four in the morning the tornado had passed and it was all tweet tweet chirp chirp you know wow talk about focus writing the record while the tornado was going on <laughs> in minnesota of all places did that well, you know, the weather just blows through there. It's flat, right? So, yeah. yeah, and I believe you guys had a third album that was supposed to have been released on Atlantic, but it ended up getting shelved once you guys got a release from the label, correct? Yeah, Sylvia <laughs> canned that record and, and you know, fine. Um, the only gripe I have about it is that they didn't really ever tell us that we'd been dropped. We just kind of found out that we weren't on, we thought we were on the schedule for September and we weren't. <laughs> yeah, that's how it goes. Right. I, I was really, I was really not sad to get dropped because we'd been writing, so, putting in songs for years and they didn't like anything and they didn't like anything. And so, you know, uh, I, it was very freeing and, and I ended up getting a nice gig after that with an ad agency as a music guy. Mm -hmm. Now, this was back during the era of people where the major labels were pretty much the only game in town, and it was going to be tough to come on as an independent when the majors pretty much had distributions and everything on lock, especially Atlantic, since they were a part of WIA, Warner, Electra, and Atlantic, WIA distribution. And now with social media and everything, you can pretty much just upload everything without having a middleman. Yeah, but you know what? It's um, it's a shopping mall. Everybody's doing. You know, the internet was supposed to be this great thing that would free musicians, but now it's just a big cloud, and everybody's putting out something every day, and nobody has time to listen to any of it. You know, um, I'm just so happy that to have come up in the era in the era that we did, growing up through the '60s listening to Earth, Wind & Fire in the 70s, and then we hit the 80s and we've got this roaring horn band. Um, you know, that that was just wonderful because the, there was still some um, bandwidth in the world to, to hear a little hippie jazz band from Portland, you know? And now, you know, there's just so much stuff that I still have the urge to write music but not that there's any reason to you know because there's it's crowded it's too crowded for me and that's not a complaint it's like celebrating that we got to do what we did you know we got to play a lot 
We were playing 300 days a year sometimes before we got signed. And, you know, and nobody had to hear the just the songs on the album. Right. And that's free. And so I want to shift gears a little bit, talk about the Portland Trailblazers. Now, you guys did a little video for the Trailblazers when they made their run to the finals in 92, where they played against three, the- three years. Three they years. were in the playoffs three years, and I did music for them all three years because the local top 40 station, Z100, that also broke I Can't Wait, um, did a did a Blazer song every year when they were in the playoffs. And so I did all three, Bust a Bucket and One, Two, Three, Go Rip City, and I forget the name of the third one. And then... After they weren't in the playoffs, I, I did uh, the Seattle Supersonics one, the next year, a song for them and the Top 40 station up there. So I feel like I had a really wonderful uh, NBA career. <laughs> it's the best NBA career that a five, six and a half guy could have, you know? Right, because I can remember hearing on NBA telecasts all the time in the 90s, the opening for I Can't Wait being played while guys were dribbling the ball up the court. I think Miami Heat started that. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. And then also I Can't that's, Wait. Because that's where we heard it first. Mm-hmm. And then also I Can't Wait was sampled by Vanessa Williams for Happiness. Rapper Spider D sampled it. And then it appeared in the episode of the Cleveland show when Cleveland Brown was going shoe shopping. So I Can't Wait still a classic record that's still loved to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who did Jam Knock? That was another one. But the Vanessa Williams thing is close to my heart because uh, I... I got to hang with Jimmy Jam a couple times. We, we uh, twice we ended up at Bernie Grundman mastering in on Sunset Boulevard, and you know he said, "Oh, I wish I would have written. I can't wait." Me and Terry wish we would have written. I can't wait, which is just really like getting a medal or something, you know. So uh, I loved uh, Happiness with Vanessa Williams. They wrote a really great couple of really great other sections to add to it mm-hmm. and uh yeah i love that one but i think my favorite one is buzzing have you heard buzzing yeah i heard buzzing it came out a couple of years ago by a rapper who named i cannot recall but i remember man that record. his name was his name was man with two n's and uh and i thought that was wonderful because it was really positive you know, nobody was shooting anybody or anything. And, right. And it was just really sweet and positive. Mm-hmm. And I want to get your take on this. The Pacific Northwest, like I said, coming out of Portland, Oregon, but later in the 90s up in Washington State, everything that was coming out of Sub Pop Records and then later Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, we could go down the list of all the grunge acts. So what was your thought on when grunge started to take over and everybody was starting to invade the Pacific Northwest to try to find the next Nirvana or Soundgarden? Oh, I got a lot to say about that. First of all, uh, that was about 1992 when Nirvana came out. And before that, I swear to God, 
Portland was the best music scene in the entire world because we had this roaring horn band, right? And so we went around, we went to New York and LA and San Francisco and looked around to see if we could find a better music scene than Portland. And we always came home going, well, nope. And then, but it never got the press that Seattle got in the 90s with um, the grunge thing. And I don't know why exactly, but the grunge thing was all over Rolling Stone and, you know, got the national media. Now, here's the funny thing. Val and I went out as a duo uh, and did the 80s, uh, the 80s tour scene. You know, you play in a, a stadium with 10 other acts and you just, it's just the hits, right? So we do our two and a half hits and um, in you know, for 10,000 people in a stadium with uh, world-class lighting and a big sound system and stuff. And so I got to know a lot of those people, the Jets and uh, Information Society and Wang Chung and um, you name it, Expose. Um, and we all lost our record deals in 1992. <laughs> when Nirvana came out, it was like, oh, this is a new thing. There's a new thing. Bye. <laughs> right. And it was crazy to see because before Nirvana, it was pop, R&B. But then once they blew up, thanks to people returning Michael Jackson's Dangerous and buying Nevermind, a lot of the labels mm -hmm. started to flock to Seattle and was like, hmm, we got something here. And as we all know, when labels get a hold of something, they want to co-op everything. And I think grunge really wanted to still maintain their underground uniqueness without the commercial viability because once commercialism gets involved, it's a whole different animal. Yeah, it made Kurt Cobain want to die. Yeah, which was which was sad and you know, brunch. It was I thought that I thought that Nirvana, I liked Alice in Chains too. Uh not a big Pearl Jam fan. But um but Nirvana I feel like really uh up the up the ante lyrically and song structure wise and sonically I thought that 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 was just the perfect next thing to happen. I I I just loved Nirvana, and 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 Kurt Cobain as a lyricist and as a very simple but interesting guitar player. Right, and the interesting thing for Nirvana for me was to see Dave Grohl's evolution going from drummer to forming Foo Fighters, and he comes across as the type that doesn't take himself too seriously. Dave Grohl. Yeah, right. Did you ever see that um, movie he made called Sound City? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's a really cool guy and very fortunate guy to be, you know, to come out of Nirvana and have something that's, you know, existed for, you know, is wildly successful. Good on him. Right. Get to bite the apple twice. Now, you mentioned earlier how. Playing the hits wasn't really the big thing because 
they programmed to the lowest common denominator as far as record companies and fans. And it brings to me the mindset of Prince and how Prince was always thinking and evolving of how can I be better? How can I create something new? And how he just didn't want to rest on his laurels. And I get that same mindset of when you're that locked in as a musician, you get bored easily by playing the same thing over and over and it just drives your mind nuts. Yeah, yeah. Drove Hendrix nuts. Um, you know, we got to record at Paisley Park. I got to had that whole place to myself for uh, about two weeks. How was and, that? And uh, <laughs> I w they had a wardrobe department. I tried on his clothes and stuff because really and 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 I was playing his guitars and stuff. It was really, really quite fun. A magnificent place that was. Yeah, very, very nice. And that's definitely on my bucket list to go touring because it has that sense for me like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory where you hear about it, but you never know it. You never see the inside of it. But now that it's open as a place to visit, it's kind of like you get to peel back the curtain like in Wizard of Oz to see how yeah, the process yeah. was made. Well, I got to work there with Maceo Parker. Um, you know who that is? Maceo James Brown from Kinston, North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we flew him up to play on our record, which was like, hey, you know, I could die tomorrow because uh, I've recorded with Maceo now. Wow. So what was that like, recorder Maceo? And did he share with you any James Brown stories while recording? Uh, no, really, like he was a guy who didn't talk very much. And, and he didn't talk, he didn't drink, he wouldn't go out to dinner with us after the session. Uh, very private guy. He, uh, he carried around a bottle of mouthwash, green, blue mouthwash, and he would t t take sips off of it. Mm, so it was all about his business, get in, get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was all business. Right. And that's the way it's but it was. To but it was weird to sit behind the board and go, you know, we start recording on this tune and I'm thinking, oh, that's like a little too happy. Um, and and I turned to my uh, co-producing partner and I go, how can I tell Maceo what to play? And and my friend, he says, oh, you got to do it. So I'm like, Maceo, uh, I need something a bit more like this. And I sang him his solo from Ain't It Funky Now, which I, I had that 45 as a 12 year old, you know? So I'm like, no, did it, did it, da, 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 da. and he goes, oh, you want that jagged stuff. <laughs> now, as far as jazz is concerned, are you more of a traditional jazz man? Or are you more fusion jazz? Yeah, I would have to I would have to choose uh fusion jazz because um I did study playing standards and stuff. I, I did that through the 70s because you have to learn that stuff. But I by 1979, by the time new shoes started, I was so bored with da 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 you know, with that kind of standards that I never really learned to play them properly. But I was a, a damn good fusion player because I didn't want to play the uh, guitar styles that normal guitarists play. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, your Eric Clapton's and your 
uh, I don't know, buddy guy and all that. I, I never wanted to do that. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah, I was a really good fusion player. All right, and fusion jazz, it jazz to me, it's a genre where for some it's an acquired taste, like your Miles Davis, sure. your Thelonious Monks. Max Roach, and we can go on and on down the list. Now, my first exposure to jazz came more of the fusion varieties, such like Najee, Spiral Gyro, Weber mm. Report, Herbie Hancock's yeah. later albums, and then Miles Davis' later album when a young, rest in peace, James, James and Tume came in and really brought him into the new age of the fusion yeah, yeah. style of jazz. Well, I guess for listening, I... I'm a Coltrane and Charlie Parker guy, you know, just for listening to, I, I love those two guys. Uh, but as a player, I'm, do you know, Ma, Ma Vishnu orchestra, you Ma know about Vishnu, that? Ma um, doesn't ring a bell. Um, tell me more. Oh, oh, well, it's this jazz guitarist that played with Miles, John McLaughlin. And, uh, I was really, really into his stuff, but for arranging, I like the seventies people the the really, you know, it's still big, bad, but like modern kind of crazier. Mm. Now was parliament or George Clinton or Funkadelic was in your vinyl collection. You know, we only had like the, at the time that all the new shoes stuff was being written, we had like six records. Like you couldn't, the thing that I got to underline is that in that era, we it's not like it was now where you could just dial up on YouTube every record in the entire world. You couldn't do that then. So I had Grandmaster Flash, The Message, and I had a couple Earth, Wind & Fire records and a bunch of James Brown records. And that's about it. Um, and later on a Houdini record, I ended up getting to meet them, you know, so, so we didn't really, the records that influenced the new shoes sound were older. They were like, I don't know. What's a good example? Uh, like, um, like, oh, who am I thinking of? The meters. Okay. We were like, kind of like the meters or james brown so i i didn't really have any george clinton records but we were on tour i think in 2018 and i got to see the studio in detroit where they recorded all of those records because they're going to put a freeway through there and i think aretha franklin and the city got together and saved this building it was like like united recording services it was called and this guy got us in there to walk around in it all the gear had been gutted out of it by this time you know they're, they're they maintained an office but this is where george clinton recorded almost everything that he did so i got to see the room and uh you know it's just just amazing to be there yeah it's crazy to see history being made in that room, just like how when you go to Memphis and you go in the stacks and you see like, man, 
all these classic records were cut here. Or if you go to the Motown Museum and walk into Studio A and say, man, all these classic hits from the modern right. American songbook were cut in this very yeah. studio. You're walking on yeah, and you can all you you can definitely feel the atoms vibrating in a place like that. Yeah, I agree. Cause when I was at Stax, just seeing the old reel to reels and the mics, I'm just whoa, just really, really, really blown away. Now I want to know what current projects are you working on? Hmm. Well, I'm doing a couple graphic novels. Um yeah, yeah, I've got about I got the next uh, 15 years of art to do planned out. And so I've been doing a lot of that. Um, my uh, music rig, Pro Tools rig kind of got hurt in the move. So I'm trying to get an engineer up here. And then we're, uh, I've got a couple video game projects I've been asked to score. And I think the thing that's really the thing that really makes me smile is that I go through these periods where I go, oh, I'm done with music. And then six weeks later, it's like interesting again. So now I'm in a period where music's interesting again. But I would never consider putting it out seriously or trying to make another New Shoes record. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to ever make another New Shoes record. But there's plenty of music that I'm interested in. I'm learning to play ragtime. Wow, nice. Go, going back to the, the funk hits of the 1910s, you know? Right, nice. Now, the one subgenre of music that I think is underappreciated and you gotta be from this region of the country to understand its significance is the beach music scene of the coastal Carolinas and part of Georgia, like bands such as the Embers, Chairman of the Board, and we could go. Oh yeah, board. yeah. You mean the old chairman of the board? Old chairman of the board. Um, paid. What was that like from the from the sixties? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, me growing up in North Carolina, you know, beach music is still very common. You can hear it on certain radio stations on the weekends, especially the further down the coast you get, coastal Carolinas, Georgia, and it just really holds a special place in my heart. And just knowing how in certain circles that music is still going strong to this day you got artists that can still tour to this day up and down the coast oh sure performing yeah i've met a met a lot of them peaches and herb um yeah well so by beach music you're you're talking about oldies right yeah oldies like you know like that chairman of the board embers the meters acts such as yeah such as those this is uh this is like the lowrider scene in LA. That's what they listen to too. Oldies what, but goodies. Well, yeah, which was coined by Mr. Art LeBeau, Oldies but Goodies, and also another Oh right. I met I met Art LeBeau. because uh, he was on uh, one of these tours that we did. Wow. Oh my god. And on that tour, you want to know the best band that I heard in eight years of touring? Yes, sir. Heard and, and saw in on the 80s circuit zap oh my fucking god <laughs> yeah like where what planet did these guys come from they they would like the stage would black out and then all their suits would turn on with lights and all their instruments had lights in them and 
Oh, it was like a wild minstrel show. Wow. And, you know, Zap out of Dayton, Ohio, them, Lakeside, Ohio players, yeah. that whole Dayton, Ohio scene, very funky. That everything that was coming out of Cincinnati, out of King Records and Osley Brothers with T Mac. Oh, yeah, yeah. We could just go on and on, all those great stuff that came out of Ohio. I had a big stack of singles that said King on them, I'll tell you. I'm from Cleveland originally, too. Just to give Ohio some more props. Right, 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 right. And then one more thing, and I want to um, close. Are you familiar with the Southern Soul subgenre of R&B? Southern Soul? Yes, Southern Soul, like Clarence Carter, ZZ. Oh, Lido, yeah, yeah. Um, see, see, I know Jackson. all about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and I think that... Of course. Music, you know... I was a big Wilson Pickett fan, and... Um, yeah, Sam and Dave. I got to work with that. I met Sam Moore. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, see, the '60s thing. I got that dialed. Right, that was definitely your warehouse, and I give you. And 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 there was there was a difference between a Motown record and a Stax record and a King record and a Chess record. You know, Brunswick, um, all those labels that were smaller. They they were all. They all had a distinctive sound. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it was very unique. And I'll give you a funny story about um, Fred Wesley. So I was in college and you know how some colleges, they have adjunct professors do visits um, and do uh, guest uh, pro professorships or what have you. So it comes to find out that Fred Wesley was teaching in my alma mater's music department. And this was at the time oh, wow. when I was like, I didn't know exactly the significance of Fred Wesley. And later found out after the fact, after he left, and I was like, man, you mean to tell me the man that was right beside James Brown, Maceo, and everybody else? He was right here. And then Parliament. And Parliament as well? And then, yeah, Parliament too. And I, and I was kicking myself. So that was a funny story about... um me having a close interaction with Mr. Fred Wesley. Now, do you have any shout outs you want to give before we conclude this interview and also plug your social media, if any? Oh, well, you can find everything that we're up to on newshoesmusic.com. That's N-U-S-H-O-O-Z music.com. All right, so definitely check it out there for all their projects. Shout out to Valerie. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And join the Facebook group, facebook.com beyond the album cover for all updates. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Smith, one half of New Shoes. John, thank you so very much for coming on and doing this interview. One ninth of New Shoes. Um, yeah, Gerald. Uh Thanks for sticking with it and, you know, making this meeting happen. It's about a year in the making, huh? Yes, sir. It's been a year in the making, but well worth the wait. Thank you for coming on once again. All right. Great talking to you. Yes, sir.